I'm Brandon Hull, and this is Freelance to Founder. Again, I just really never imagined a hard goods business, anything, you know, selling goods to consumers. So coming into this has been, it's been a true pleasure, honestly, to step away from the app world and have, you know, Reagan and I are building products that people are wearing around and, and will have for many years to come. So it's pretty incredible. One million in sales in under two years with very little experience. Welcome to Freelance to Founder, where I uncover the stories of freelancers and solopreneurs who've scaled their businesses to be something much bigger than themselves. What do you get when you cross two friends working for the same B2B marketing software provider? One's a designer and marketer, and the other is an account manager. Well, you get a fantastic, fast-growing watch company, of course. This is the story of Reagan Cook and Ryan Torres. They work together at a Los Angeles-based software company called Bridge, but their desire to start their own thing, a direct-to-consumer fashion brand no less, led them on an incredible journey full of lessons. Neither had any experience with developing or designing, let alone manufacturing and marketing physical products. But in this episode, you'll hear how they decided what kind of brand there would be, how they found mentors in an industry that was new to them, which Apple, of all companies, is now dominating, how they settled on overseas manufacturing partners, when and how they came to assemble their watches in America, and even how they launched a Kickstarter to kick off a new model of watch just very recently. Their watches range in price from $175 up to $849. They've got this classic minimal look that I couldn't find one negative review of or assessment of. When you scroll the designs and read about the brand on watch or fashion websites, you have no idea that it only came into existence a couple of years ago. This is their first major interview, and I'm excited to bring their story to you. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Reagan Cook and Ryan Torres of Vare Watches. Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. Ryan and Reagan, welcome to Freelance to Founder. It's a it's a great joy to have you guys on the show. I'm excited to talk to you today. Thank you very much, Brandon. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure, Brandon. Thank you for having us. It's it's 2019. Vair Watches has been around in reality, I think, since officially what 2016, somewhere around then, when it officially became a thing. Is that safe to say? Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we started uh, very, very light sales in 2016. We started ideation in, in 2015, but really we, we started uh, full public sales in 2017. So the first couple of years were a lot of brand development, product development, friends and family sales, that sort of thing. Okay, so th- that's, that means that we're only two years into this, really. And yet, by all, all that I can discover through my pre-show research... We are over seven figures in sales, but can you confirm that? Where are we at? Where is Vera at from a from a business standpoint today? What can you share about the numbers? 
Yeah, um, as you say, um, I think we've pretty much achieved like 4x growth over the first two um, main years of revenue. And, and that's putting us on pace uh, for over seven figures for the first time uh, this year, which is really exciting. Wow. So the breakthrough year will be, as far as numbers go, will be 2019. I'm sure in many ways it may not feel like a breakthrough year for you because you're you're in the trenches dealing with a million things. But from a number standpoint, if we're just evaluating kind of somewhat superficially, this is the year. Just uh, two years into it, not even really two full years, uh, but just uh, just around two years into it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think from our perspective, uh, again, because we did grow significantly in 2018 relative to where we at, where we were at in 2017, it, it definitely feels like um, we've just more or less maintained um, the same kind of pacing, the same type of oh wow, um, this thing is is really uh, catching legs. I mean, I remember the first time we did say twenty twenty thousand dollars of revenue in a month, and that seemed like such a milestone. And and in many ways, even reflecting back on that. Um, maybe that was even a bigger aha moment uh, to to say where we're at today, um, but but you know progressively as you hit higher and higher um, revenue numbers or even on a monthly basis, weekly basis, and even on a daily, um, you know your your perspective shifts and and yeah to, to suffice to say though. Um, there have probably been more of those uh, kind of exciting moments related to revenue or related to just kind of overall growth uh, this year. And, and that's kind of, you know, exciting and obviously something we want to keep building upon. Yep. So uh, hopefully we'll cover some of that as we talk uh, today about what you guys have built here. And, and again, it feels exceptional to me when you if you look at it from the outside, you look at who Reagan Cook is from the outside and Ryan Torres from the outside. This is this strange thing where. There's there's nothing I feel like in your pasts that should have clearly presented that this was going to be the case, that you were both going to be leading. You're going to be combined together, forming a direct-to-consumer physical product brand that is doing amazing things just two years into it. Like I feel like this is a, almost like a joke. Like Somebody could say, what, would you, what do you take or what do you get when you mix a marketer and designer with uh, a person who's got an enterprise software background <laughs> um, as a as an account manager and and business leader, and a watch company is not the answer to that. So, who can share with me the genesis for Ver Watches? Like, where did this idea first begin, and how did you guys two meet? Yeah, uh, I can I can jump in on that, and you couldn't be more correct. Uh, pretty much everything leading up into college and through college was going to be tech focused. I was excited to start an app or the next big tech business. I couldn't have imagined hard goods. Um, but Reagan and I actually met um, in in my first role out of school, and I believe his as well, at a company called Bridge. And it was a, a database email marketing system, basically. So uh, for local businesses, Reagan was doing marketing there and I account management. And uh, so we worked there for a couple of years together. And back in 2015, um, I sort of got an initial itch to, to build a business and, and started just looking into different niches. I'd always had a passion for watches and uh, was honestly looking at a huge variety of, of niches from stand-up paddle boards to Polaroid cameras, just something that was small, easy to ship, uh, and, and kind of stumbled into watches and started looking into the watch world. And very quickly grabbed Reagan. Reagan's an awesome designer and marketer. Um, started showing him logos and product designs, and and we combined together. And basically from then on, just <laughs> been side by side, building out product, building out brand. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I honestly could never have imagined to build a hard goods brand, and I couldn't be happier to be working with Reagan on a hard goods brand now. 
Reagan, yeah. when Ryan first brought this up, did you kind of feel, I, I maybe you guys collaborated through this, but did you guys feel daunted at all in the earliest days settling on watches when this is like a $55 billion industry that is in the midst of already being disrupted with smartwatches and just wearables in general? Did, did that, clearly that just didn't phase you guys, but what, how did that shape the earliest days, what you guys felt like you would need to do if this was going to fly at all, like in the very earliest phase? Yeah, so from my, my side, um, again, uh, working alongside uh, Ryan for a few years, and it was in that data-driven kind of marketing space. Kind of, our, The company we were at was a small kind of Series A startup, so a few million dollars in funding and a team of you know 20 to 30 people. Um, but following in kind of the wave created by the Amazons of the world or the Netflixes of the world, which were these, you know, massive high growth tech companies that were kind of changing the way uh, that they leverage customer data to, to kind of uh, become smarter, to do be- better job at marketing and better job at tr- delivering a customer experience. So that was the context of the company that we were at. And obviously, a lot of those lessons from that tech company relate to how retail operates today generally and also how we kind of think about our business. From my side, um, actually, like the initial conversations that I was having with Ryan, it wasn't really um, it wasn't it didn't take me uh, by surprise by any means. Um, even while I was at Bridge and even before that at USC, I had always um worked uh, as a freelancer. So that was kind of, um, and, and again, uh, my kind of core competency uh, has always been around that design, that storytelling, that brand positioning kind of concept, primarily from a creative standpoint. And so I had been more or less pitched by, you know, dozens of friends and, and kind of uh, associates with their business ideas and then asking for advice. And so that's, I think, initially uh, where the first conversations between Ryan and I started was, I think, in that context of, you know, Ryan had this idea, had done the due diligence, had understood the market opportunity, but uh, and, and probably, I think, just initially approached me with the, the kind of maybe at me freelancing in that regard. And I think what stood out uh, very quickly, and again, because I had seen different pitches, I had done work for a wide variety of different clients uh, with, with, you know, from the very good ideas, I thought, to very poor ideas, but yeah, as a, as a young freelancer, you never want to turn down an opportunity for, for a, a little bit of a payday. I think what differentiated it uh, from my side and that initial thing was, again, like Ryan really pitched um, the whole idea very concisely. And of everything that I had come across, this one felt the most thought out um, and really the most feasible. And, and, and so I kind of... Um, Realized, and I think that's a, a position that any freelancer is going to find themselves in. And, and maybe you, you, you know, you you get so many clients along the one, and then when that one cl- comes along, that you're like, wow, this could really be something special. Maybe that's where you kind of go through that kind of thought process. Is, do I just want to make as much money from this client in the next six months as possible and move on to the next thing, or do I want to, you know, discount my rate, try and get on board, try and maybe I'll work for free because I actually want to be a part of this opportunity? And that was kind of my thought process, and I think that was kind of a natural transition from freelancer to founder as as we kind of got further along in the discussions of what the 
type of brand uh, we wanted to build was going to be. When you were doing the freelance work, Reagan, uh, can you tell me what was what was the nature of some of the types of work that you were doing? Yeah, from my perspective, and you know, Ryan can speak to this from maybe the other side as well. Is as a freelancer, it was trying to help guide, um, kind of. And again, I, I was just you know in my early twenties or uh, mid twenties, so I was working primarily with smaller upstart brands and in kind of you know side hustles uh, for the most part. It was just helping uh, people, passionate founders with ideas to help kind of come come to terms with what that maybe visual identity was, or what that brand identity would be through, you know, uh, graphic design, through logo, through, you know, brand name Got it. Um, and, and voice all of and copywriting, all of those types of things, all the things that can contribute to that, that special feeling that we associate with the Rolexes and the Nikes and the Apples of the world. So for you, there was the underpinnings of what it was going to take to build a product that wasn't just a commodity but evoked a feeling. Maybe I'm stretching a little bit to say sparked a movement necessarily, but at least people felt like they were uh, aligning with a true brand as opposed to wearing something. Ryan, for you, you mentioned early on that you envisioned being involved in um, the software world, maybe an app or something like that. Are you suggesting that you always knew you would you would ultimately break away from the corporate world, even if it's a startup corporate world to found your own thing to start your own business it was that just the plan all along that was fueled by your time at usc or when did that when did that sort of crystallize in your mind uh yeah no i i i definitely have those like classic entrepreneur stories where from a from a pretty young age i knew i wanted to start a business i was always the guy buying and reselling things on ebay in college i made a little iphone repair business so i was always sort of on that path um, I, I just, I guess, initially envisioned it being apps through college. That was when like, you know, Facebook was coming up and the social network came out and everyone very excited about the app world and making a billion dollar company and apps just seemed so appealing uh, and so, so broad and, and if you will, hot at the time, it was definitely always a plan to make a business. Again, I just really never imagined a hard goods business, anything, you know, selling goods to consumers. So coming into this has been, it's been a true pleasure, honestly, to step away from the app world and have, you know, Reagan and I are building products that people are wearing around and, and will have for many years to come. So it's pretty incredible. That is pretty cool. So it's one thing to come up with a hard good product that needs to be designed, manufactured, distributed through channels, all of that. It's another thing to choose watches specifically. And you already talked about a little bit how you arrived at watches, but as you started to sort of unwind all of the dependencies or all of the follow-up things that you would need to, all the bases you would need to cover to ultimately launch the brand, let alone make it successful in year two or year five, what were the first steps you guys took to figure out all the things that you were going to have to be proficiently expert in, in order to make this work pre-launch? Yeah. So the, the process of building the product and, and really starting from scratch with the brand, uh, it was pretty natural and organic. Uh, it initially started with just sort of vetting vendors overseas, discussing with vendors, trying to find somebody who could produce the product we wanted. Uh, honestly, we got a lot of design help from the designers and vendors overseas to begin with. I kind of had the foundation. We had the foundation of what we wanted. We wanted to build a durable wristwatch that was with the Swiss movement. It had 10 atmospheres of water resistance. So we had fundamental features. And then we basically just started to work with design teams. And, you know, there's a lot of manufacturers overseas and sort of dial in the project, uh, the product over time. Uh, and so 
there was definitely a lot of vetting and a lot of working through manufacturers. Finding quality is not an easy thing to do. So we went through three or four manufacturers before we even had a sample that we liked. And then from there, it was just tweaking and adjusting. And, you know, as you kind of said, we're by no means expert in wristwatches. So we had a lot of time on forums, reaching out to experts. So, you know, we have a, a couple contacts in LA that are wristwatch industry veterans um, that work on luxury watches. And so we would bring samples to them. We'd sit down with them. We'd look at the features and how things were built um, and just work through suppliers and slowly design and develop. From an aesthetic perspective, you know, Reagan is definitely the the professional designer in the, in the the on the team. So, you know, I had an idea of what we wanted and we basically, Reagan would just, you know, build mocks, we'd review them, we'd make adjustments, we'd build mocks, we'd review them and make adjustments. But that, it really, it took until, Reagan, what was it? I believe late last year until we had a product that we were really, truly, uh, you know, very, very pleased with. Our initial product was strong uh, and it, it's a great product, but it took just repeated dialing in, changing features, changing components, changing colors. I mean, Pantone colors are something that's a daily conversation with us, just finding the perfect combination of aesthetic and functionality. You're mentioning in your answer, the first thing you mentioned in your in your answer was uh, manufacturing um, partners overseas that you could potentially collaborate with. But knowing nothing about the industry other than some advanced research that uh, that you guys helped me with, but that I also discovered when I when I searched online, like there's a major chicken and the egg scenario here. And by that, I mean, it's one thing to go to a manufacturer when you have a product that you have already created a prototype for, you, you're ready to manufacture in large quantities or in initial batch quantities just to get a, an MVP, so to speak, out there. But that product has to be designed, I would think, with some manufacturers. Others might be a little bit more collaborative to work with. How did you guys know that you were ready to go to manufacturers without a prototype or without a product that's been already visually designed at least with a lineup of specific features or did you skip that part did you actually already have some of those mock-ups and feature sets already written up uh, pretty exhaustively so this the the really really preliminary conversations was more so not even ready to be manufacturing but just ready to start exploring and start discovering so we had a feature set we had a general aesthetic sizing dimensions that sort of thing and so it was just a lot of question asking understanding capabilities understanding pricing, all those sorts of things. And then during that process, we were also dialing the, the aesthetics. And our first line was uh, much more aesthetically simple. We started with the Vayer Classic and it was a minimalist watch style, uh, you know, really clean, really good looking. And so, yeah, it was just, a, it was a really long ongoing process of, like, like we said, it took, you know, over a year before we sold our first goods because we wanted to get it perfected. We went through, um, probably 10 samples, 10 full samples, which were incredibly painful processes because, you know, you have a month or two months to produce each sample and then you finally get it in your hands and it may not meet the needs you want. And so it was just a lot of tweaking. Um, but yeah, in, in the very beginning, we, we had a pretty good list of what we wanted, what sizing we wanted and how we wanted it to look. And then it just became more specific over time. A, a phrase we like to use a lot is we didn't know what we didn't know, or we don't know what we don't know. Right. And it's been a never ending path of that. You know, we, you, you come in thinking you have a, a list of what you need and what you need to produce. And then the manufacturer will start asking you specifications that you weren't even aware existed. And from there, it's a, it's a new layer of learnings about uh, more detailed specifications. And, you know, now we're to the point where 
there's 10 layers of watch design that we didn't even think about in the beginning that we've now become sort of experts in. I don't want to say experts by any means, but very knowledgeable about. And it's been, you know, a lot of help with online forums, a lot of help with those local experts in just asking questions, learning, purchasing, you know, we each own a few wristwatch books and and kind of self-educated ourselves on the world of wristwatches. Right. Reagan, I want to turn to you on that one as the primary designer here. (laughs) Um, Is this, are watch designs something that you had had been fascinated with or tinkered with on the side here and there as well? Or when you guys settle on watches, was it something that you just kind of dove into and thought you could really pour yourself into it as a guy who, who cares a lot about brand design and so forth? What did you bring to the table to kind of get, you know, dig into what, what the look and feel of a Ver would be, how it would be represented? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, first of all, to say that, like, I think all of our designs are always um, collaborative, I mean, pretty much 50-50 between, um, you know, the shared process. The thing that would be differentiated is in the same way that there might be, you know, to build a great looking app or a website, there's a product designer, an engineer. I would probably in, the, in our design, you know, exercise, I'm just more of that engineer, the actual developer in terms of my capacity of, of building that mock-up and building that prototype. Um, but, but I think the... The key advantage um, that both Ryan and I have, um, and I think this could also apply to other people who have started successful retail startups, is um, one uh, innate skill and something that probably you know get uh, prioritized in business school would be the idea of you know how how uh, talented are you as a as a consumer or as a shopper, and not to say that Ryan and I are you know uh, big buyers by any means or big spenders, but I think there's a commonality in that we're very, very discerning in the things that we do choose to buy. And, you know, um, you know, we're the type of people, even before this project, we would spend maybe weeks or months and, you know, hours and hours reading forums about, you know, a pair of shoes we might want to buy or a literally anything. Um, And then I think that type of mentality and that type of conscientiousness about, you know, the things that you would choose to, you know, the clothing you wear every day or the, the objects you put on your wrist or the things that you put in your house. Those types of um, that type of patience or that type of consideration or consciousness, I think that really helps uh, when you get back into the or when you are actually have that opportunity to say, you know, what would my ideal desk uh, look like or what would my ideal wristwatch look like? Or, you know, if I was going to do a better version of these, you know, podcast headphones that I'm wearing, how would I how would I do that? And and to be honest, I think Ryan would probably feel the same way. I, I, I mean, that that type of thinking like pervades every, everything I, I look and see. I, I mean, I, you know, I drive a car every day. I like the car I drive, but I can kind of criticize and analyze aspects of it. And, and so when we are in that, that mentality or that role of having that kind of unique responsibility of let's build our perfect version of this product. And that's in this case, a wristwatch, you know, all of that type of, of that thinking, that patience, that review, that understanding of, you know, where should money be invested and where should money be saved those types of things, um, I think in many ways make us a better, make us better designers. And so really, um, I wouldn't say we never really set off with a particularly complex design task. It was really just, let's just build our version of the perfect wristwatch. So, I mean, that sounds quite simple, but I mean, that's really what we set out to do. And, and I, as much as I love our current product lineup, I, I still don't think we're there yet. Um, I think it's, you know, as you get further and further along as a designer, the margin for perfection becomes thinner and thinner, but there's always tweaks. There's always very, very minuscule adjustments. And I think 
at this point in our brand, you know, Ryan and I collectively are our toughest critics. And, and, you know, there are things that we want to change that I think, you know, 99% of our customers wouldn't, wouldn't look at or wouldn't think of. And so that's just kind of the, the, the reference point that we take um, in the design. Well, and it also seems that the typical entrepreneur or founder that I've spoken to, uh, something that's kind of woven into their DNA is that whether it's a software product that they've developed or an agency they've founded, or in your case, a physical product, it seems like there's just a filter through which they view their lives. And, 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 and the filter is one of inefficiencies. Like, and, and maybe it's inefficiency, or in this case, it's a little bit of a design. Something's missing from a design perspective. But you find, and I don't mean this in a pessimistic way, you find the flaws in your everyday situations in life. And the difference between the Brandons of the world who see those, who feel like I see some of those things and the Reagan and Ryan's clearly is that you guys see that as an opportunity, a chance to sort of maybe get into something and disrupt a whole world or at least play a part in the shaping of a new industry or a new product or something like that. Would you guys say that that's, that's kind of your, your, you know, your DNA is that you go through life seeing how things could be better suited for our lifestyles, better designed to fit into our lifestyles instead of being sort of obnoxious <laughs> um, appendages to our lifestyle. Is that sort of, did that sort of infuse your plans for VAIR at all? Yeah, I mean, I can answer that or, or start to answer it. And I think like maybe it's something that would surprise people um, about my kind of introduction to, to VAIR and to the, the watch industry is that um, I didn't actually own a watch. Um, I have only ever before actually i've never i've never really purchased a watch other than a single um digital wristwatch um that i bought when i was in the army and the reason for that is that you know i bought a, a wristwatch a digital timex at walmart because it for 20 dollars, and that served a, a significant purpose but between that uh, watch which i enjoyed it's a great watch up until you know you know 10 years later or whatever it was five or six years later there hasn't and it's not that i haven't considered it's not like that i haven't shopped for watches i just have never i or i had never found a watch that i thought um was good it was basically good enough for to, to justify me spending you know money on it whether that's fifty dollars two hundred dollars or ten thousand dollars but i hadn't really gone far enough down that journey personally to, to say that that made sense for me now, Ryan, and I'll let him speak to that, um, he'd actually, because he was perhaps even initially more passionate about watches as an object, had gone even deeper into the research and had discovered brands like Seiko and discovered kind of this. And again, this goes back to what I was saying about us being kind of savvy or really considered consumers, is that he had actually kind of started to look into this world of, you know, what are the coolest watches that guys potentially own? I think from my like hesitance or my like resistance to like the, there are not a lot of great mass market products and his understanding of what are like the coolest watch brands that no one's ever heard of. When we kind of combined our collective thinking on it, we kind of came up with our brand. There's literally like three entirely different avenues. I want to have time to investigate in this conversation. One has to do with how you built Ver as a brand. Um, the other has to do with operationally. What, how did you guys go about understanding the watch industry in a way where you could secure the proper distribution channels and that sort of thing. And then the third one just has to do with startup life in general, um, which is mm -hmm. the mistakes that you made along the way. So we're going to get hopefully into all three of those, but let's talk about the brand piece because as two young guys who are getting into a, a really crowded, very old industry, 
that has recently been heavily disrupted by smartwatches, uh, by wearables in general. How did you guys together decide what Vare would be as a brand and sort of a counterpunch to this rush to digitize everything in our lives and be everything be internet connected? How did you guys work together on that? We, uh, we, I, it was incredibly collaborative. I mean, we, we started out in the very beginning knowing that the outdoors was a pretty core, core part of our brand. And in the outdoors, being disconnected and not being connected to the internet is a, a pretty big and important point. And so we started with um, you know, the vibes of, of California, of surfing, of being outdoors, of being in the mountains. All these pieces were sort of the root of the brand. Uh, and, and it was just a lot of refinement over time, taking those initial components, understanding that Bayer is more so about being disconnected, being in nature, being with friends and family, not as much about having, you know, a wearable where you're constantly connected. And so that was never even really a threat and hasn't yet been a threat because we see our brand is something quite different and a different offering. But in regards to building the brand itself, we had a lot of meetings where, you know, we'd sit there for hours and just discuss what is there. If there were a person, how does that personality go? I mean, Reagan can, can probably dive into the exercises specifically more, but it was just a ton of whiteboarding, a ton of phone conversations, a ton of back and forth determining, you know, what are our values? Who is there? What does there want to be? And what do we want to represent? And then once we had that set, and that was back in more 2016 when we were building the brand and building the product, once we had those values set, it made it easy for us or easier for us to build the brand and to build the product because we were building around the values that we set and the brand we wanted to be. When we made decisions in product design, uh, we've very frequently taken the harder route in product design. It's the more expensive route, the route that's going to take longer, the route that's going to require more design resources because we wanted to stay true to building a very high quality product that's that's durable. And, you know, cutting corners would have been a lot easier in the short term for us in a lot of areas but they wouldn't have adhered to the brand and they would have potentially damaged the brand and damaged the quality of the product. And they've, they've enabled us to scale to, to where we are at this point. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to Hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. 
LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. There has to be a representation of the two of you because it is it's your it's your child <laughs> together, so to speak. But Reagan, did you guys have certain other brands that served as inspiration um, that sort of helped you decide that at least decide on sort of the um, attributes that Vera would represent as a brand? I love the way you phrased it, Ryan. So now I'm curious if there were other brands, you know, that sort of crept into uh, the thinking on why you needed to define it that way. Yeah, I think there definitely are. I mean, um, neither Ryan or myself have, uh, you know, we're not um, people like I, I didn't go to do my MBA or anything. I studied economics at USC, but otherwise I really don't have um, a deep knowledge of, you know, the inner workings of, you know, the most profitable companies in the world. And, and but, but the few that I have kind of looked at, and I think Ryan looks at the same ones, for example, um, you know, we both read uh, Let My People Go Surfing. That's Yvonne Chouinard's um, biography about his uh, his journey in creating Patagonia and, and kind of the brand brand values that he tried to instill in that company. We're also both big fans of Shoe Dog uh, by Phil Knight, and and you know those are convenient um, and inspiring books not only because of them being in retail space, but I think you have this kind of these West two West Coast founders and and Yvonne Chouinard and Phil Knight that really it really um, pervaded that their goals really uh, went beyond growth numbers about. And particularly Patagonia, and I think, um, I know obviously it's having its moment uh, right now, or it was having its moment for the past few years. But for most of its its brand existence, uh, it kind of operated on this idea of five percent, ten percent growth year over year is great. The most important thing is is staying true to our, our our values and staying true to our you know our goals. And you know, over decades, you know, we're going to be founded in the early '70s, but 30 or 40 years later, we're going to be a really really big brand. <laughs> And then, you know, that that type of mentality, it simply doesn't really exist or it, it runs counter to primarily to the, the tech industry right now. But a lot of just the, the thinking of grow to 100 million, be acquired and then cash out sort of thing. And and, and the, the unfortunate thing that I think Ryan and I realized is that in in that effort towards extreme growth at all cost, in many cases, something that's like built into it is this um, like planned obsolescence of an economics term, but the idea of like a throwaway society. And, you know, we all love, um, I mean, Apple Watch is, is a cool product, no doubt. Um, and, and in terms of sales volume, I think this year they'll sell more watches than any other company and make more money from it, probably something like five or $6 billion of Apple Watches being sold. But but when you think about where will those Apple Watches be in five years, they will, they're not going to be on people's wrists. They're simply not designed for that in the same way that the phones that were you know, don't leave our pockets or our hands um, any given time during the day. We'll will be in a landfill or be in a in a desk drawer in five years from now. And that's kind of the nature of of the tech industry and of a high growth and, and kind of a profit cent profit centric industry. And and that that's that's good and fine. And obviously, 
that's kind of just the way tech uh, kind of operates. Um, but but when it comes to retail and when it comes to you know objects that we want to feel close to and the type of brand we want to build, um, kind of the vision of of Patagonia is the world, and there are a lot of other companies as well, um, primarily older companies, honestly, companies that, you know, have been founded 100 years ago or 200 years ago. A lot of European brands kind of still maintain this ethic. Um, those are, and, and Japanese brands as well, actually, we've, we've gotten a lot of inspiration from. It's that um, sense of um, taking real pride in your craft and, and, and saying that if I'm going to sell you something, I'm going to sell it to you as my peer, as I would like a friend. And I don't want that, that object to break or disappoint in a year's time, two years time. I want it to last for 10 years or, or decades with, with proper care. And even if it, that, that hurts the, our bottom, ultimate bottom line, that's going to make us feel better as founders and make our brand more authentic. Fantastic. And I appreciate what both you guys had to say about what went into identifying where on the chart, so to speak, you know, that an MBA student would, would put together, uh, where does Ver fit compared to uh, the Apple Watches and the Cartiers and all of these folks? Where do they fit and who is the customer that's most likely to be attracted to Ver? Not just from a design perspective, but from a price point perspective, from a lifestyle perspective, all of that sort of thing. So all of that is wonderful because you can think through all of that without ever having to have a watch in your hand. But for a consumer to ultimately have a watch in their hand, You've got to have your distribution plan. Again, going back to what we said before as a premise that you two were guys that did not have experience in this. What were the the things that you learned and the stumbles you made along the way as you figured out what it's going to take to actually bring a watch to the market? Even just design number one. How did that? How did you guys think through that? How did you? Uh, and what what did you guys encounter um, from a hard lessons learned standpoint in getting it? You know, getting to, to uh, production. Yeah, it was uh, definitely, I will say, a lot of frustration over the last few years for a lot of kind of sitting there and not knowing the answer to a question and not really even knowing who to ask. I will say absolutely, and I know we should have said this earlier on, having a business partner, having Reagan has made this exponentially easier. I can't fathom having done this alone. The amount of struggles you run into, specifically with logistics and manufacturing and receiving samples that aren't up to spec and working with partners that don't do a good job is a lot of frustration and a lot of feeling like, you know, like it could be feeling that you're alone. So there are many times when, you know, something would go wrong and I would be, you know, down in the dumps, call Reagan. And he's like, no, it's fine. We're like, we'll figure it out. It's okay. So those types of things were incredibly important in the path to, to, to building the brand and, and building the logistics in the back end. Everything was very organic for us. You know, we started, uh, you know, with the friends and family orders, the first orders that came in, we were hand delivering them. And the first orders that were ordered online, we were in the garage packing and shipping and, and getting them out. And so over time, as we scaled, when when packing and shipping orders ourselves became too cumbersome and we weren't able to do marketing, we spent a bunch of time shopping on a 3PL and, and leveraged a third-party logistics company to start doing fulfillment. So from that sort of logistics perspective, it was very organic. So that's fulfillment specifically. On the manufacturing perspective, we definitely had to work through manufacturers over time. We had manufacturing partners um, that initially did a good job. And, you know, if quality slipped or if we needed design components on the watches, especially as we learned more that they weren't capable of doing, we had to go and, and shop out new manufacturers. And fortunately, we have a really incredible manufacturing partner right now um, that essentially enables us to design anything we want, which is is truly incredible. Our capabilities there 
sky's the limit. We were recently able to go from our original quartz line to building a, uh, you know, our original quartz line started at $149 and we now have a, uh, an automatic watch that retails at $899. And that was because our manufacturing partners enabled us to build pretty much anything we want and, and really expand our, our product line. So from the manufacturing end, um, definitely just a, a lot of, you know, testing, learning uh, and adapting over time. Who mentored oh, you guys right. through this process? This this is a this this is a pretty thorny aspect of building a physical product, and especially working with overseas manufacturers, where there's all sorts of things that could go wrong. Did you have mentors? The internet was our mentor. Google uh, was your mentor. Yeah, no, it was from a from you know the import export and logistics perspective. Wherever we could, we'd try to jump on calls and and get information from people, but. There's just, you know, honestly, Google and forums and, and there's, you know, blogs. Actually, I do need to, to give credit. There's a podcast called E-Commerce Fuel. Um, they were pretty monumental in, in helping learnings on the logistics perspective, on import-export, on that sort of thing. So definitely a lot of podcasts, a ton of internet research. Um, definitely want to give credit to uh, a guy named Bo Gori. He lives in Los Angeles and he, uh, he does uh, work in refurbishing and repair of luxury watches. He was definitely a mentor from the watch wristwatch design perspective. We would bring our samples to him and he would give us feedback and, and let us know. But it was just a ton of internet research and a ton of testing and learning. A lot of asking questions to anyone we could ask questions to. It was not being afraid to ask questions. Somebody may not have the answer. They may not want to talk to you. Um, but most of the time people were very, very generous with their time. But yeah, I mean, Reagan and I, we pursue a conversation with other business owners of any size at any opportunity we can, because there's, there's always questions you have loaded up. And then again, for the 10th time, we don't know what we don't know. So if you have the opportunity to talk to another founder, it could open up a conversation of a, a subject area that you didn't even think about asking or learning about. And those parlay into, new expansions or, you know, solving old problems that are a thorn in your side that you didn't even know there was an easy solution to. Have you guys made friends, so to speak, made good connections within the watch industry in particular? Uh, People that have been willing to welcome you into the industry and provide words of wisdom and some nudges along the way? Yeah, I think when um, Ryan already kind of mentioned this from that, that, you know, the initial design idea was was relying on just kind of local technicians, pretty yeah. much industry pros, people that knew a lot more about us. And then the other thing that really um, kind of ramped up our, our kind of technical knowledge as we were moving things along, and, and we didn't really touch on this yet, but was this decision uh, to move um, our final assembly uh, from southern China to uh, to uh, Los Angeles. And that was, you know, that's a perfect example of like from profit perspective, why in the world would you ever do that when you have a massive global supply chain uh, in your favor and you chose to, you know, swim against that. Um, But we chose it. um, And I think it it just resonates with, you know, with the story. And and obviously it had um, a lot of value from our perspective of, you know, actually sitting beside the watch techs, these guys who have been, you know, putting watches together for, for decades and, and really hearing their feedback about our design. And, and obviously other, you know, there's always, that basically would have been impossible. Even if we had gone to, to Shenzhen, um, you can't sit beside, uh, the guys putting your watches together and they can't talk to you necessarily. It's just, it's just not a thing that exists. So for our decision of, of bringing in everything, uh, in terms of final assembly and testing stateside, it was a really, really important step towards, um, kind of our legitimacy, our understanding of, of the watch world in general. Um, from that 
point of saying, okay, we're making a commitment to this American Assembly concept, that did open up the opportunity to go to meetups, conventions with others who are making this uh, crazy dream a reality. And so there are a bunch of, um, actually, in our opinion, some of the best brands out there are those uh, kind of smaller, you know, sub $10 million revenue a year American startups that are kind of like us. Uh, We don't really consider them competitors because I think everyone in this world is is doing their own thing and representing their own vision. Um, But those guys um, are awesome. And it's really has been kind of a welcoming community. Um, And I think it's because we don't see ourselves as a competition. We see kind of the the big guys who are, are doing it in a, in a worse way or selling worse watches. We see we see those people as the ultimate competition. And and for us, uh, the idea of kind of promoting this this idea of craftsmanship, promoting this idea of product quality investment, um, we're all fighting the same mission in that regard. Was that decision made early on, or was it made after a few stumbles of the first batch that came off the line from manuf- from an assembly standpoint? It was it was made uh, no, it was not made early on at all. We you know we we initially started doing everything overseas, and it was sort of just a, a ridiculous idea or seemingly ridiculous idea at one point. I mean, like Reagan said, from a financial perspective and from a logistics perspective, it makes everything more complicated and more expensive. But we we looked at our product and looked at the potential for bringing assembly stateside. And, uh, you know, at first it, it didn't even seem realistic. And then, you know, we mentioned it in meetings and over the course of months, it became more and more real. We started reaching out to assembly teams. Uh, it completely altered the course of the business. It, it allowed us to differentiate. Like Reagan said, it brought us really close to product design and seeing the intricacies of product design and getting to speak directly with the person assembling each watch changed everything because we we then had insight into different little components and tweaks that we could make to improve the the watch design but it wasn't by any means part of their original vision it just um you know i i have to go through my emails and notes i'd I'd like to actually know exactly when the idea was spurred Uh, but it was it was cool and it was also kind of a, a challenge for us to take on we looked at it like hey we're building a business we're building our skills uh and you know we're building a foundation for each of our futures let's let's take on this challenge like it's it's a fun thing bringing part of our manufacturing from overseas to america it's not something that's often done and it's been really really truly fulfilling and yeah. depending on where you're at on the website depending on when you land at the website and how long you wait the main homepage top front and center of the homepage it's now an important feature that while it might be swiss movement it is american assembly so it not only became a an important quality decision. It seems like it became an important decision for what the brand would ultimately represent. But so let's, let's yeah, pivot I can, here. I can speak. Oh, go ahead, Reagan. Yeah, go, sorry. No, I was just going to say, that, yeah, to, to um, piggyback on that. Um, yeah, I, I think um, to me, like the, the things that represent a, a strong quality brand, you kind of combine, I would, I would simplify into like three P's, which is a person or the personalities behind the brand. Obviously, Ryan and I have that um, going for us. The next is product. And, you know, wherever you make your product in the world, whether that's, you know, Apple making iPhones in China or, or otherwise, the product has to speak for itself. But I think the third thing, and I think with, which is kind of coming back in vogue um, and, and becoming more important um, today is this idea of place. So your person, place and product. And when you have all of those things together, um, that really gives, um, especially with something as personal as a wristwatch, it, it, it really, um, granted, you know, 
whether a Chinese assemblyman puts it together or a guy who lives in L.A. puts it together, at the end of the day, what's the difference necessarily? The thing that I think that's important is it, it, it makes the object more relatable. And whether Swiss-made or American-assembled or Chinese-made necessarily communicates quality, that's another conversation. There's probably other things you need to be looking at in terms of the specs to determine that. But at the very least, um, by by making a commitment to an assembly uh, location that really helps embody the brand and the product with that sense of place. And I think that's why, you know, people are willing to pay a little bit more of a premium if it's made in their home city or their home state or their, their uh, the country where they're from. You guys chose to go the Kickstarter route to, uh, I don't want to say launch the brand, but was that something you both knew early on? Is it, This is the only way to do it, really. It's the only way to get a significant amount of cash. What was the funding thinking Kickstarter is the way you did it, but what was the funding thinking that went behind that? The the initial brand, the first couple of years were financed by Reagan and I. We put in basically our, our collective life savings to get the first production runs going. And, you know, we, we started with those friends and family sales and bootstrapped the brand over time, basically put everything back into the brand, everything and more. You know, a lot of initially 0% interest credit cards uh, used a ton of, there's all these capital sources now. So there's Shopify capital, PayPal working capital, and basically, you know, all these modern tech companies ingest your sales data and are, are able to give you loans and, and help you operate on that. They're not affordable loans by any means, but they got us to a, a certain point. And it, we did a Kickstarter uh, this June. And so that was a, a, a big topic of back and forth for us. You know, we, we wanted to continue to bootstrap the brand as is, but we were also launching this new automatic line and we knew it was going to be very expensive to launch. And we knew we had an opportunity to leverage Kickstarter uh, as, a, as a way to launch it in terms of gaining traffic, uh, in terms of gaining reputability, uh, and in terms of, you know, raising a bunch of money to help finance the next order of watches, which is by no means inexpensive. Like it was huge for us. It, it enabled us to, to get the word out. It gave us reputability as a brand. Kickstarter is cool because the public can see how many people and who and, and the hype and the excitement around the product. You know, we had a ton of comments. Obviously, you can see the amount being raised and the amount being sold. And that enabled us to pretty easily show editorials and PR. Hey, there's people paying attention to this. There's people enjoying it and excited about it. And, you know, this is something worth talking about. It's, and it sort of propelled us into into a new phase where people understood, hey, Vayer is it's a real brand. People are excited about it. There's hundreds of people who are willing to purchase this automatic watch, and and they're incredibly excited for it to be released. You know, we've talked so much about the successes along the way. Where what is one of the decisions that, if there have been any, that have made you question whether you're on the right path or whether you are well equipping yourselves the right way to build a brand that will be sustainable for a long time. Have there been those moments where you felt like, uh, not a good call by us in hindsight? Um, I think the, the, Short summary is that um, we've been very fortunate um, and very patient with the decisions that we've made. So we've, we've, I think, for the most part, um, avoided any major uh, blunders or any points of like, oh, wish we didn't do that. In retrospect, I mean, as you grow, I think every business owner um, kind of has this probably experience is, oh, I wish I knew what I knew today when I started. You know, you just pick up and develop knowledge um, through testing, through learning. I would say probably like the thing that pops into my head as, you know, a missed opportunity. Um, 
is probably the first half of, of 2017, um, where we had, you know, we had, as, as Ryan had mentioned at the beginning, uh, we had kind of done our friends and family launch uh, over the holidays at the very tail end of 2016. And that was largely just a way of us making back our initial investment, our initial investment. But then at the beginning of 2017, we were sitting there uh, with inventory, with you know, cash in hand as as kind of the, that as support from friends and family, um, and 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 that's I think where the business becomes very real because you can't essentially build a business just selling to people who you know uh, by posting things on Facebook or LinkedIn and being like, hey, can you buy this? <laughs> You have to figure out a way of selling to total strangers and convincing people who don't know you or maybe don't like you. And 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 I think that's where Brian's uh, background and and because uh, after we were working together, we went uh, in separate ways working at different tech companies. Um, he went into kind of ad buy for you know uh, the largest retail companies in the world for the most part. You know how brands were spending $20 million monthly Facebook budgets. And that, and that obviously gives you a perspective. I mean, again, we were, we'd always been working kind of data and tech and kind of had an understanding of, of how this worked. And I had a pretty decent understanding of, for example, Facebook ads as well, or, or Google advertising. But, you know, there's one thing from, think, from understanding it to, to someone saying, oh, Facebook ads help drive growth. But it's a different thing from, you know, committing to spending $500 a day or $1,000 a day. It took us months, honestly, to make that commitment of, of being comfortable, you know, in, in those early days, spending $100 a day and, and maybe just throwing it up into the air, into the ether and not, not making any sales. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how cool your product is or how nice your website is or how cool your logo is and all of that stuff or how many Instagram followers you have. If you're not driving consistent traffic targeted traffic to your website, you're not going to sell, sell, make sales. And you're at least going to, even if you don't make sales, you're going to find out very quickly whether or not you have a business. And it, and it did take us uh, probably longer than it should have uh, to ultimately make that commitment uh, to Facebook advertising. Do you remember the moment, either one of you, and maybe because that happened at different times, where you knew Bear was going to work out? It was sometime in October or November of, of 2017. And we had made you know, six sales uh, before I had gotten into work. So before, you know, 930 in the morning, I was just driving in and you have the Shopify app open. And I was like, oh, we've already made like a thousand dollars today. That was kind of, and you know, that's kind of the, also the, the, the jump from being a freelancer and thinking, you know, making $50 an hour, a hundred dollars an hour is a great way of, of earning an income, but it's something very different to have just woken up having no idea that you haven't you haven't really been doing anything to open your shop and say, oh, we just made a thousand dollars and it's only eight, eight o'clock in the morning. That was a definitely I can I can still remember that moment. And that was a definitely an aha moment of the power of basically e-commerce. And that was a sense of like, OK, now we need to get serious. How about you for you, Ryan? Late last year was was an incredible time. All the holidays of last year uh, when when things sort of kicked in and we saw our real first Black Friday period was pretty incredible. Uh, but honestly, the, the Kickstarter for me was the big the big point at which I was like, you know, this is a real thing and this this could be truly very big. And I knew it could be truly very big, but it was just such a point of validation where we we put ourselves out there and it was anxiety inducing to put our put our brand out there to the public and, and see what the response is going to be. But when we, you know, closed the Kickstarter and far exceeded any of our goals, in releasing a brand new product and we're able to get covered in some of the editorials that we kind of always dreamed about. That was the point at which I, I was really, really excited that, you know, there's your, there's your to stay. As you look back over these last two years, what have you guys learned about yourselves that you didn't know if you had it in you 
to be or to accomplish or to achieve, what what are you most proud of that you were able to learn about yourself and accomplish versus where you were? So I always, like I said, I loved entrepreneurship. I loved business, but I've been, uh, you know, a much more technical, mathematic type of person. In building there, I, I learned that I, I guess I always wanted to be creative and, and would was looking for a creative outlet. And Vayer sort of gave that to me. Uh, a couple of years back, I, I was given a book from a friend called Steal Like an Artist. And the essential premise of that book is no art's original. Nothing is original. Everything's built on something else. Everything's built from influence of other things you've seen in your life and a remix of other things you've seen and you've learned and appreciated. And that sort of opened my mind up to the fact that, you know, anyone's able to be creative two years ago or prior to building Bayer, I, you know, I always wanted to be creative and I always would have loved to build something. And the course of this path and actually building a product and actually building a brand with Reagan and, and creating something new, but also built off of things that I've always loved and always appreciated has been pretty enlightening. The life of freelancer has, it comes with a, a wide range of challenges, but I think the, the biggest one is uh, when you create something that you think is fantastic and, you know, the client is completely, uh, has a completely opposite opinion and where you also, you're kind of all, always compromising on your vision, your design um, in, in, in exchange for, you know, your, your stable paycheck. You know, it, that doesn't necessarily mean just because you're working for yourself that you have free reign and free control because ultimately you're still kind of responsible to upholding the expectations of your customers. And, and those, you know, a thousand people or a million customers all become your clients in a way. And that's a really exciting um, premise. But what's really cool is that you can create a design or a logo and, and have hundreds of people or thousands of people around the world, you know, appreciating that, appreciating those like minute design choices or those those little attention to details that they maybe glance at, you know, for 15 seconds during the day. But a little bit of appreciation kind of goes a long way in making um, giving you giving you a sense of purpose. And that's why I ultimately think uh, the founder mindset, at least for me, has been extremely fulfilling and something that I'm, I'm glad I uh, embarked on. I found one of your customers on Twitter who I think wrote a review as well and said, I've been wearing the same watch for over 20 years. I finally found a new one I like. That's got to be so amazingly gratifying to hear people say stuff like that. Yeah, it truly is. It's uh, it's like hearing people, you know, receive our product and, and speak positively about it and, and for it to impact their lives is truly incredible. I wish you guys the best of luck. Reagan, Ryan, thank you guys both for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Brendan. It really was uh, awesome talking with you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Really appreciate being on. That was the story of Reagan Cook and Ryan Torres, uh, co-founders of Vare Watches. And next week, I've got yet another unbelievable guest for you. Shane Snow, founder of Contently, now chairman of this fast-growing enterprise content management software provider. Much like our interview of Scott Keyes of Scott's Cheap Flights, he's a journalist turned entrepreneur. Hear his full story on next week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us your rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcasts and tell a friend or three, won't you? Recommend us, mention us, and pass us along and reach out to me on Twitter at Brandon Hull, H-U-L-L. All right, a thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Millo and admin of the Millo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Abrar, for helping put this episode together. And of course, to our friends at the Podglomerate Network. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. 
Thank you.